Hey everybody, it's May 16th, 2019, and we are here on the No Film School podcast. This is Charles Hayne. I'm George Edelman. And we're going to be talking about Game of Thrones, because in 2019 you can't talk about anything else. We're going to be talking about a vintage No Film School story that keeps going and going. And we're also going to be talking about Aeroflex making some geographical changes. All that, along with an Ask No Film School and a little bit of tech news, here on the No Film School podcast. All right, so it is another week. We are a podcast, which means we're on the internet. And if you're on the internet, that means in May 2019, you have to be talking about Game of Thrones. So this episode had no major technical hurdles that I noticed. The Twitter has not exploded with like a random coffee cup or this episode too dark hashtag. So yeah, like, unlike uh, previous previous weeks where it seemed like all the conversation was about something strange and out of place, uh, yeah. this conversation is more about the content. <laughs> Obviously, there's a lot of people talking about interesting character choices and and the rushed feeling of the arc. And there was a really great tr- Twitter thread about about um, pants style writers versus plot style writers. That the first half of the show really felt like it was going by the seat of their pants, and then. As sort of happens, it becomes very plotty at the end because you can't wrap up a show without wrapping up its plot. Yeah, I think a lot of people feel like a lot of this was unmotivated, but you can see a lot of the motivation being planted early on. I think the bigger problem was that the runway wasn't long enough. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that people don't feel as comfortable with the character turns because, you know, I saw an interesting tweet actually this morning too that I wanted to mention. Somebody said... There's never been a greater disparity between the writing and the filmmaking as there was <laughs> in that episode. Yeah. Is it a mistake for us to separate those two things? I love the I love the point, but I feel like cuz a lot of people have talked about this and the long night in terms of just so well directed, but they but but eh, well we don't know how we feel about the story. So necessarily. Oh, absolutely. We were going to talk a little bit about some interesting technical stuff that happened with this episode that was kind of interesting. I mean, there was some dramatic departures in the cinematography for this episode. Uh, I've seen a lot of people talking about the fact that Clegane Ball, the cinematography on that was epic border. I mean, it was almost the cover of a heavy metal album. Like, (laughs) it was like the levels of like shafts of light through fog fire in the like it was like it was epic cinematography in a way that like one of the things that's really been interesting about Game of Thrones is they do a lot of really sophisticated visual design things to help us track it right like obviously the north is cool and the north is blue and the northern uniforms have that blue cast and you know the south is warm and red and it helps us orient ourselves right. in space and the golden red army and all of that stuff like that's all really sophisticated and maybe not realistic I don't know that armies in I mean whatever Westeros doesn't exist armies in the middle ages <laughs> probably were not that well coordinated in their outfits just because they didn't have the budget um, <laughs> but the interesting thing for me about this episode is that it is a show that like the cinematography has generally been pretty unselfconscious. There's not been a lot of lens flares. There's not been a lot of like, you know, crazy aesthetics. A lot of eye level. Yeah. Like a lot of like classic cinematic technique that for the average viewer disappears into the story. I remember reading about Mad Men, for example, and then it was, you know, once I was aware of it, I thought about it a lot, but they treated, they were like, let's shoot it like we're shooting Hitchcock, which is in no way a uh, easy or less, you know, it's just like, we want to stay eye level. We want to stay classic cinematic, like Hollywood 
movie making from that era that feels as like grounded and familiar to the eye that doesn't suddenly say whoa super stylized i think the way you're describing clegane bowl yeah it felt sort of like art in a different way it felt like visual art suddenly like like poster art like you said or you know expressionist in a strange like and a lot of the episode felt that way i mean it looked Um, like it could have been painted on the side of a van which yes. like is not an insult. <laughs> it's a compliment. It was awesome. I enjoyed yeah. it, but it was definitely a departure aesthetically from earlier parts of the show. You know, motivated light lit by uh, candles. Like there's drama, but the drama is in the content. And this was one of and the first they, times they serve it up so um, casually, without you know, so so traditionally that it, the shocking element becomes the the story point whereas in this the filmmaking was expressive and emotive when i read your post about the um the lens flares you referenced the tower of joy sequence which is actually my favorite sequence in the entire history of the show they really went to some expressive technique but they also you know low angles high angles backlit and it felt epic in a different way because it was a memory it was this famous battle it felt like a lot of stuff playing out in wides in the choreography of that fight it felt almost like an old swashbuckling movie with these big you know movements between the it wasn't like tight and compressed the way i heard this the king's landing battle described as feeling a little bit like black hawk down you know yeah i mean it definitely felt uh like schlaumir ijak influence like schlaumir ijak the dp of Black Hawk Down is like a phenomenally expressive DP. He also shot some of the decalogue. He's like most famous for making his own filters, which like is super badass and punk rock. And like, yeah, Black Hawk Down is like exceptionally expressive filmmaking. And yeah, I could totally see that as being one of the reference points for King's La- uh, the Battle of King's Landing. There's this big epic lens flare at the end of the episode. It is like... It is, it is like a 1960s, we're doing a road movie lens flare. And I realized when I saw it that I was like, whoa, Game of Thrones really doesn't lens flare that much. Which is what made me remember the Tower of Joy has one at the opening and it's like for two seconds. And I found one other. But then there are all these shots that could have easily had a lens flare if they'd wanted to. Like, you know, Theon on the beach, the sun's breaking over mountains, no lens flare, nothing. No, di- And, you know, a lot of times lens flares digitally added in post. I don't know with that shot of Arya and the horse if they digitally added it. It actually looks really organic to the scene. And it looks like a cook lens flare. And I know they shoot cooks on the show. So I, I don't think they added it in post. But it's like a very, it was a real, yeah, it was a real indicator of the extent to which this episode was a visual departure from the rest of the aesthetic of the show. I've joked with a friend that one the one thing Game of Thrones really needs more is needle drops. And there were so many like death metal moments in this. Oh, God. <laughs> that, that I, I even saw on Reddit, somebody threw Hell's Bells on. Yeah. And it was just perfect. Like the yeah. sink was like exactly right. Yeah. I mean... <sighs> All right. Well, I think ACDC is always a really good place to wrap up a Game of Thrones topic. But (laughs) next up, we actually had an interesting post. This was from a few years ago, but uh, we reran it and it got a lot of traction this week. And that is Roger Deakins uses one LUT and one LUT only. Um, And it was sort of an interesting sort of covering of an interview with Deakins talking about a lot of the work he does as a filmmaker and how he really sticks with one lot. And what I liked about it and why I'm glad we were in it. And I think it's, um, 
always really good to rerun with people is to remember that like a LUT, like a, which is a lookup. If you don't know what a LUT is, it's a lookup table and it's something that transforms an image. You can put it in a camera, you can put it in a monitor, you can put it in your editing software, you can put it in your grading software, and it takes an image that looks like one thing and it changes it to another thing. So you might have a, a desaturated looking image and it'll put a little more saturation and a little more contrast in it. It does that kind of thing. Um, and and it, it does it with math. It does it with very simple math. The beauty of a LUT, I mean, you can open a LUT with a text editor. You know, if you have Notepad or text edit on your computer, you can open a LUT and you can literally see the list. It is a table. And that's the reason why you see them everywhere. It's really simple processing. A low power camera with an underpowered processor can probably still load a LUT, whereas more complicated processing might be beyond the bandwidth uh, that's built into the camera. So what's interesting about Deacon's approach, it's super smart, is a lot of filmmakers get very fixated on, all right, I'm going to have a LUT for the scene and a LUT for flashbacks and a LUT for this and a LUT for that. And the danger in that, and what Deacon's talks about really elegantly is, that is only one of like the 50 ways we can control what an image looks like. Like you control what an image looks like by choosing where in the world you put the camera, like picking locations on a location scout affects your image. Obviously you could not have shot going back to Game of Thrones. You could not have shot the battle of King's Landing, which I believe shot in Slovenia um, or Serbia. I do not remember. You could not have shot yeah. that or, you know, um, you could not have shot all of those North of the wall scenes in Los Angeles. Like, you can't drive out to Malibu and find someplace to shoot the... So part of your image is where you put it in the world. And no amount of, I'm standing on a beach in Malibu, but I put a LUT on it, is going to make it feel like north of the wall. Um, part of how you craft an image is lighting decisions, where you're putting the lighting, what the light volumes are, what lenses you're choosing, all of these things. And I think one of the things he's talking about is that you have so much control over the image with all of these things that you can't change in post. It's very hard for me in post to go back and move a light physically. It's very hard for me in post. I mean, it's almost impossible in post to be like, all right, I want the camera in a different physical location. What I love about the post is that, you know, I'm, I guess I'm a little old or old school in that to me, the idea of like, well, like just light it the way you want it to look just seems so obvious <laughs> for like, it's just like, yeah, that's probably the best option. Like you want to try to get it right in camera, the fix it in post cliche or the re relying on a lot to give it a look. It'll work in a pinch, I guess. It'll work to do certain things pretty effectively, but I just love the simplicity of one of the great cinematographers of our time saying, I really think you should just try to get the look you want when you're shooting it. Yeah. Well, and remembering that, you know, every every part in the imaging chain plays a part, right? There are things you can do in color grading you can't do on set, but it's only one part of the overall image chain. And you don't want to over rely on any individual part of the chain because there's stuff that you can't change later and there's stuff you can change later. So I found it to be a really interesting um, sort of post and approach one of my one of the most fun experiences I had filmmaking wise was just shot a short on actual black and white stock in Death Valley on 35, which is such a film schooly thing to do. And we got to we were choosing what black and white film stock we wanted, and we were talking about processing we were gonna do, and that's how we created a look. Yeah, it's just and and the lens the lens breathing on a rack focus sort of thing. I think the mo the most important thing probably is understanding the the choices you're making, why you're making the choices. So if it's because of LUTs or if it's because of film stock or whatever it is, 
motivating your choices, right? Well, I mean, it's always, it's almost always story, right? Like the fun thing about that Deacon's interview was he was talking about the fact that he's like, I storyboard everything and half the time we throw it out, but the storyboarding process is a process about getting to know the story and the characters. It's about getting to know who these people are and trying to figure and trying to understand them so that I can craft the images that fit for them. And that might, that crafting might take place on set in a whole fresh way. So storyboarding is a step in the process about learning the story, which is why it's storyboarding, yes. uh, um, which <laughs> yeah. I thought was cool. I, yeah, I, I love that they also talked about tossing it all out yep. in that because it just seemed like a great, like, don't get don't get married to a plan yeah. either. Oh, know? absolutely. The, the point of the plan is to be better prepared for what happens, not to execute perfectly the plan. Because, um, you know... Uh, not to not to quote Mike Tyson too many times today, but uh, Mike Tyson's great quote: "Everybody has a plan until they're punched in the face." Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, next up in news, so you know we don't we don't drive everything on the podcast by traffic. We're going to talk about the things we're interested in, but then this one got a lot of traffic, and that's interesting. So Aerie is leaving Atlanta. Now this is particularly interesting because Airflex has offices. Airflex rentals, right? Uh, for context. Aerie is one of those weird companies that they make cameras and they sell cameras. And then they also have a whole rental company. And weirdly, that rental company is in competition with Panavision. So they're like Panavision's biggest competitor. But Panavision is also their biggest customer because Panavision buys so many of their cameras to Panavise them. So Panavision is both their biggest competitor and their biggest customer because the film industry is weird. I'm sure there's other Ish. industries like that, but that it is, is definitely weird. And that is definitely like one of those fascinating, weird little things. Like how can they both exist so su- successfully feeding each other and off each other in that way? Yeah. Uh, what I thought, one of the things I thought that was interesting about or evidenced by the success of the post in terms of traffic was that the brand of Airy is so powerful. The interest in what they're up to or what's happening with them that something like that that doesn't it's such a local story i mean yeah. thinking about it from the we're, we're a global audience it it's it's fascinating to me that it would be oh wow why is you know in this one little part of the country why is yeah. this happening just to give people who didn't read the story a little more context so it's airy rental who rents their cameras and their lighting and stuff like that sky panels and whatnot airy rental had five north america locations vancouver los angeles brooklyn atlanta and Charlotte, North Carolina. And they closed one. And you would think Charlotte, North Carolina would be it. But instead they closed Atlanta. And and that is also, like the Airy brand, I think is a big part of the reason why people internationally might have clicked on it. Because everyone all over the world loves Airy. But I also yeah. think the, the surprise of it, the like, wait a minute. You closed Atlanta, not Charlotte. And like, look, no offense to the great state of North Carolina, but what are you thinking, Harry? Because <laughs> Atlanta is, I mean, between Hunger Games and Infinity War and so many other projects, like Atlanta is a big market for filmmaking, the Georgia tax incentive, all sorts of stuff. And I don't think of Atlanta as being that much more expensive in terms of real estate than Charlotte. I was going to say, is part of it, we talked about equidistant location between... So the theory we've come up with and I, I love a good theory, is North Carolina has a film industry, of course, because it's got tax credits and whatnot, but North Carolina has a very interesting film industry that it is on the coast down in Wilmington. And I think what this is strategically about is that Charlotte is like four hours from Wilmington and four hours from Atlanta, whereas Atlanta is like seven hours from Wilmington. So I think this is Aerie being strategic and saying people will drive four hours for a camera pickup. 
So I think that's the situation that they're sort of strategically saying, all right, we can serve both. Because Charlotte, weirdly, like there's a huge Cinelease location in Charlotte. There's a whole bunch of other infrastructure in Charlotte. Even if there's not a lot of production in Charlotte, Charlotte is sort of a hub for that region where, you know, I certainly, you know, I know productions, I think, out of D.C. that got served out of Charlotte for some of their rental. And I think that's an interesting strategic choice on Aeroflex's part. The flip side of this is, you know, it is a bummer for all of those Atlanta productions who wanted to just drive down the street to Aeroflex. Because um, one of the interesting things, and I actually don't know if they were doing this, this might be showing my New York LA bias a little bit. Aerie does lots of trainings. And I wonder if they only do that in the LA and New York locations. But like the LA and New York locations, like there's all sorts of certification trainings and color management trainings and stuff like that. And I wonder... I don't know if Vancouver and Charlotte are doing as much of that, uh, but I think not having, even aside from formal trainings, there's always the beauty of when you've got a local rental house that you can just go down the street and, you know, try and get your hands dirty, try and get a job, try and, you know. I, yeah, I was going to say the cool thing I've heard from people is that like working at a rental house, you learn so much. Oh, It's such yeah. a great idea. I, I've, when I've yeah. heard people talk about they learned a lot from working in a rental house, I think, why didn't I ever think of something like that? Like, I can't imagine the knowledge that comes from just being around the guys who work there, being around yeah. the filmmakers coming through, just having your hands on the gear all the time. I mean, it seems like such a cool opportunity. I didn't know that, uh, to my chagrin, that LA and New York area do trainings. That's an awesome oh, yeah. piece of information. And I yeah. hope all our listeners know that now because that... That's great. That's a yeah. great thing to take advantage of. Oh, absolutely. If you are in those markets, you should get on their mailing list because they do a lot of stuff. It's, it's it's I don't know if any of it's free, but it's all airy and great and intense and like everything Airy does, it's all very rigorous and uh, you should totally check that out. Also, if you read American Cinematographer interviews with DPs, like half of them spent a year or two at a rental house when they were young. All right, so the big tech news this week is actually a beta release of software. And that is that... Uh, Resolve, which came out with the brand new version 16 at NAB, is still in, Resolve 16 is still in beta. If you've not used beta software before, beta software is a software company saying, hey, this software is not perfect yet. We know there are bugs. You should probably not do professional jobs on this yet. Like you shouldn't be in a situation where a client is depending on you because stuff might go weird. But if you want to start learning our new features and and honestly, if you want to help us do our testing and let us know what's not working, you can download this beta. So there's private betas and there's public betas. Resolve with 14, 15, and now with 16 has been very public with their beta. And they released this giant release in uh, NAB a couple weeks ago of Resolve 16. And now beta 2 is out. One of the big headlines with Resolve 14 and Resolve 15 is they're like, we're going to try and keep everything in the edit, right? So now there's Fairlight for audio, so you don't have to use Pro Tools. There's Resolve for color, so you don't have to use Base Light. There's now Fusion for VFX, so you don't have to use After Effects. And it's all in one program. It's all in one timeline. So there's no more round tripping. There's no more all of that hassle. It's all in one piece of software. That's been their previous year's headlines. But with 15, when they integrated Fusion, we were all wondering, like, all right, well, how are you going to be exciting for 16? Because with 15, it's like, all right, those are all the major pieces of software I use. Like, unless you integrate, like, the script writing process and try and kill Final Draft, like, I'm running, I'm running out of software that I regularly use that you can integrate into one platform. Um, and so it was interesting to think with 16 of what headlines that they were going to try and make. They did three things, one of which I'm sure other people are more excited about than I am. But the one I'm least excited about is they now divided the edit page into two. A cut page, 
which is like the simplest bare bones. You need to make an edit fast. You don't need all your sophisticated tools page. And then an edit page with all your sophisticated tools. I guarantee you some people are going to fall in love with that cut page. And the same way I have a couple people who are always telling me how I'm missing out because I don't use Final Cut 10 enough. I guarantee you someone's going to be like, oh, yeah, I cut like a six-hour documentary in the cut page. It's amazing. I'm sure I will have that conversation with someone really soon. <laughs> I'm not that excited about it because I like the edit page. And, you know, I, I, I'm used to all those tools. Is it like just a different dashboard? I'm it's certain a, it's a I'm different dashboard on. and a simpler set of tools to make things move more quickly. So the I cut see. page is all yes. designed for like speed. Um, Got it. And so, yeah, it'll be, it's a little bit Final Cut 10-like is what I hear. I haven't so used you it could, yet. So, so would it sort of be like a, this was my rough and then this is my fine kind of like switching back and forth or just I like two that, different ways? I think that there might be some of like, I'm using the cut page for like string outs and assembly and then I'm going in and actually yeah. doing sophisticated cut in the edit. And so let me let me ask this. If sure. I, if you said it already, apologies. You can go, you take the same project and it exists in both timelines simultaneously. Yep. Well, that's oh, the whole that thing is, with that Resolve. That is cool. Is yeah. that, that yeah, right, like, right. with cut, edit, color, Fairlight, and Fusion, it's the same timeline. So there's no handovers. So like I can be working in the edit and think, ooh, that shot's too bright, and it's making my edit not work because the audience is thrown off by it being too bright. I just click over to color, I darken it, I click back to edit, I keep working. It still seems to me, anecdotally, of course, that most people like Premiere. What is the... Where is it that is, I mean, I've always thought a lot of it has to do with what you learn on. Can you explain? I mean, I'm just going to say path dependence. Like there is, I'm starting to hear a lot more younger people using Resolve. Um, like the school where I teach, the Fierstein Graduate School of Cinema, we're switching our intro class over to Resolve because, you know, we are, uh, we're an affordable public school and our, we're like mission driven to uh, help people get access to the film industry. And all of our students were really annoyed by paying for a subscription. And they're like, can we just use Resolve because we can use it for free at home and we don't have to pay for a subscription and go back and forth. The thing is, yeah. is we have path dependence. Like when a whole lot of productions are all using Premiere already, it's very hard to move over. And Resolve yeah. is a little horsepower hungry. You can run Premiere on a slightly less powered computer than you can run Resolve. So between those Got two it. things, I think it's a slow change. I don't think we're going to go back to that world. You know, in 2007, 60% of the market was Media Composer and 40% of the market was Final Cut Pro 7. And that was it. Premiere was like 2% and Resolve wasn't trying to edit. And like, there was like Lightworks in Vegas, but nobody used them. Um, we are now in a four unit world. I'm actually working on a big article right now about like all the four major editors because like Final Cut 10 has some market share. Resolve has some market share. Um, Premiere and Media Composer still remain really dominant, but nobody is the world crusher. I think if you're going to work professionally in post, you need to learn all four. But I think productions are very reluctant to move. You never move in the middle of a project, right? So if you've been cutting like, for instance, House of Cards, which just wrapped Mo up last... Most people never move in the middle of a career either oh, on yeah. anything. <laughs> oh, my God. But, like, House of Cards was still cutting Final Cut 7 last year. In 2018, a, pro wow. a product that... Because they had a <laughs> workflow that they built in 2009 yeah. or whenever they started posting on that show. That worked. And they didn't upgrade the OS. They didn't, like, their machine sat there and worked... And did their job because that was the workflow they figured out. So change comes very slowly. 
Especially in entertainment, though. Oh, I mean, yeah. script supervisors who still want to use a pen and pencil. And, you know, it's, oh, yeah. Well, and <laughs> this, I was also. The whole world of analog still exists in abundance. Yeah. I was talking to uh, the guy, John Miller from Hive, recently. Uh, everybody knows Hive lights. They make these wonderful chip on bulb RGB lights. And John was uh, going off on this, like, very charming rant about how the film industry is, like, so backward looking. And, you know, you don't find any pilots who are like, you know, the airline industry, analog is best. We really need to. St- like uh. you know like everybody <laughs> like here's the thing resolve is also resolve want resolve knows people are slow to switch and post resolve is really actively working to get people to switch and that's one of the things that they're really aggressively doing is they're trying to roll out features that are so exciting that editors who are like nah i've been using premiere for a decade now ever since final cut 7 did that weird thing with 10 i've gotten used to premiere i know premiere like what is it that makes me want to switch and resolve is smart they're savvy and they came out with two huge features that I think are really interesting at NAB, way more interesting to me than the cup page. The first one is they are outsourcing their cloud solution. So literally in March, I was spitballing with a friend and I was like, what could they possibly roll out You know, that is going to make this really interesting? Because they have amazing sharing tools. I teach here on a shared database where we're all working in a shared database together, 14 of us at the same time, but you need to be local. Media Composer has a cloud solution. Final Cut 7 used to have iChat video. Um, there was, uh, there's cloud solutions in Premiere, but honestly, they're all fucking terrible. Like I try and <laughs> use the Premiere cloud solutions to like collaboratively edit. And frankly, I still just use Dropbox and making exports and stuff. I've not, basically the same companies that are making the edit also trying to create the cloud solution has not been going well because I think right. they're very different expertises. And so I was like, what is Resolve going to do about a cloud solution? Because they're smart and they know they're the last one to have this cloud solution. And honestly, they did the smartest thing possible. And they were like, our cloud solution's Frame.io. That thing you guys all use and you already all have an account, we're just going to like build it super integrated into the timeline where it's like, we're going to take advantage of the open API of Frame.io and we're going to work directly with them to build a really robust integration where like your Frame.io folder shows up as a source drive where you can drag media straight from Frame.io into the timeline. And then you can pop stuff back in and the comments are really organic and it's a one button thing. And you're like, and it's like, oh, oh, you went to an expert who's really good at this because Frame.io is really kicking ass in that um, integrated space. And you're like, we're just going to work with them. We're not going to, like, Blackmagic doesn't have, like, the Blackmagic cloud I now have to subscribe to. Thank God. And I was like, (laughs) oh, yeah. This is really, it's also really smart because it means that the 90% of people who don't need cloud edit don't have to pay for it. Whereas, makes sense. yeah, it makes with, sense to me. Frame.io is the name I know as yeah. doing that better than anybody else. Well, and with Premiere, I'm paying a monthly subscription. And, you know, part of that is all these cloud tools I never use. And 95% of the people probably don't use the cloud tools, but I'm paying for it. Whereas yeah. if I'm just a Resolve user and I'm using the free version at home and I don't need all that cloud stuff, I just don't pay for it. It's so smart. It was like, as soon as I saw that, I was like, ooh, this is not like, this doesn't seem like a big, smart, savvy headline, but it's like a very sophisticated take on the way this is supposed to work, in my opinion. So I was really impressed with that. And then the other thing, and it's terrifying, but I think it's exciting. The other thing that was really exciting about the 16 release at NAB is, um, you know, machine learning is starting to show up in our software. So they have a thing where you can point it to a pile of dailies and it analyzes the pile of dailies for faces, the same way like Facebook can recognize faces and be like, is that you in this photo? That same type of technology looks at all the faces 
And then it's like, hey, you can name these four actors. I see they show up in shots. And then I'll create a bin for you with each time this actor appears. Or I'm working on a doc, and I'll create a bin for you with each time that person is in a shot. Mm. And Is it going to take some assistant editor jobs away at some point? Right? Well, is that the path we're on? It is going to change assistant editor jobs. I was right, just listening that, to an yeah, interesting... Better. Yeah. Well, you know, there's, the, there's that story about, like, uh, there were 400,000... Uh, in the 70s, there were 400,000 uh, clerk accountants, I think. Accounting clerks, right. who all they did was add up numbers. Excel, right. I mean, VisiCalc came out, and then it turned into Excel. And there's now 600,000 accountants. Um, so, like, more jobs, but less adding up number time. So there's going to be just as many assistant jobs, but the assistant yeah, jobs are yes. going to be much different, and they're going to be collaborating much more closely with sort of the machine learning tools. And um, and frankly, the life on jobs where you never, you know, a lot of my jobs, I don't have an assistant edit, right? I have like three days to turn around a thing. I went out and I shot a whole bunch of stuff. Like being able to quickly knock this out on a, on a quick little mini doc or something where I didn't have the budget for an assistant yep. will make a yep. like one mule team's job much easier. Um, so those are the things I think people should be looking out for. And I think now that we're at beta two, if you want to play with it, also the trick I always want to remind people with Resolve, if you install a new one, it often overwrites your old one. It doesn't do that with the beta because beta is in the name. But you can also go in in a Mac and rename your old version. So like my Resolve, I'll, I'll name like Resolve 15 stable. And if you rename the, the application in your applications folder, when you install a new one, it doesn't overwrite it. So you could have beta 3 and beta 4 and beta 5 all installed. Because it says Resolve 16 beta, it won't overwrite Resolve 15. But it's a little trick if you want multiple versions of it running, which is something you often want to do when you're exploring beta software. Because um, something might be working in one and not working in another. And that's a good thing to know if you're exploring beta. So usually now is when we do an Ask No Film School, but we already talked a lot today and there was nothing like happening in the boards this week with the question section. So if you guys have questions for George and I or any of the writers on No Film School or just questions about filmmaking in general, go to our boards or hit us up on Twitter and we will answer it in the weekly Ask No Film School segment next week. Hey, so this has been Charles Hain. And George Edelman. And you can check me out at Charles Hain on Twitter. At George Edelman on Twitter. And obviously No Film School is always at No Film School. So uh, you can check out all of these stories we talked about today and so much more at nofilmschool.com. See you next week. <laughs>